0: This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Phil Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief. Today, we'll be discussing the efficacy of colonoscopy for colon polyp surveillance in older adults, that is, adults over the age of 75, with our Associate Editor, Shreya Kumar, and we'll be discussing her summary in the August 2023 issue of Evidence-Based GI, which summarizes a study in JAMA Internal Medicine entitled Association of Life Expectancy with Surveillance Colonoscopy Findings and Follow-Up Recommendations in Older Adults, which was a study written by Audrey Calderwood and her colleagues up in New Hampshire. So welcome back, Dr. Kumar. And why is this
1: an important topic for our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. So I think we all know that colonoscopy use in older adults is a hot topic. In the U.S., we have an aging population, and we want to provide good quality preventative health care, but balance it with the risks of invasive procedures as well as healthcare costs. And in fact, this is not the first EBGI summary we've done on this topic. Dr. Philip Okafor wrote about frequency of colonoscopy use and outcomes in individuals older than 75 recently. And in that study, screening colonoscopy in adults over the age of 75 was associated with a very low rate, 0.2% of invasive colorectal adenocarcinoma. And what's more, in those with invasive cancer and a low life expectancy, less than 10 years, only one out of nine received treatment for their malignancy. On top of that, those with a short life expectancy, had approximately double the rate of adverse events after colonoscopy. In this study, we're actually talking about colonoscopy surveillance. So colon polyp surveillance is the most common indication for colonoscopy in the U.S., but as we know, benefits may be reduced compared to the risks in those over 75. And it's important to remember that if you only find one to two small adenomas, The recommended surveillance interval is now seven to 10 years. It's no longer five years. So if you're doing surveillance colonoscopy in older adults and only find one to two small adenomas, you may want to consider whether it's beneficial to recommend further colonoscopy or to make a proactive recommendation to stop further surveillance. This decision also depends on the patient's life expectancy. If it's shorter than 10 years, and especially if it's shorter than five years, then we probably shouldn't just reflexively recommend repeat surveillance colonoscopy. Although admittedly as gastroenterologists, we aren't accustomed to estimating life expectancy. Overall though, our best natural history data suggests that it may take over 10 years for an adenoma to t- turn into cancer. Although the vast majority of adenomas never proceed to carcinoma and simply stop mutating before they become cancers. I, I think that really hits on some very important points.
0: You know, in my own practice, if I'm doing a surveillance colonoscopy on somebody who's over the age of 65, especially if they're around 69, 70, 71, 72 years old, and I find no polyps on surveillance colonoscopy, or I only find one to two small adenomas, then if I just reflexively say, okay, repeat colonoscopy... I'm actually recommending repeat colonoscopy in somebody who's going to be, you know, 77 to even 80 years old by the time they come back and if they already have a lot of comorbidities at 69, 70, 71 like cardiac disease or diabetes or COPD, gosh, their life expectancy's shorter and and I have to purposely think, okay, Should I just say stopped right now, or should I, uh, you know, make a recommendation to come back in seven to 10 years? Right. This study by Calderwood and colleagues estimated life expectancy in patients over the age of 65 who were getting surveillance colonoscopy, as well as looking at follow-up colonoscopy recommendations associated with the colonoscopy report. So it's a retrospective cohort study using the New Hampshire Colonoscopy Registry, and this is a registry where patients fill out a brief form right before the colonoscopy with some demographic data, and then the endoscopist or the nurse fills out a form that provides the findings from the colonoscopy as well as patch reports, and this all goes up into a database. And they linked this database with Medicare records, which is how they were estimating uh, life expectancy. And among the 5,000 plus patients where they were able to estimate life expectancy and had colonoscopy results along with uh follow-up recommendations, what they found was that virtually, well, what they found was that first that the number of patients who had large adenomas or colorectal cancer was actually relatively small. 8% had an advanced neoplasia, less than 1% had colon cancer. And that among these patients over the age of 65, that about 8% had a life expectancy less than five years, and about 35% had a life expectancy of only 5 to 10 years. Nevertheless, virtually everybody was told to come back for a repeat colonoscopy. Only 13% of people were told to stop getting any further surveillance colonoscopy. What do you think are the key points about this study in terms of its design as well as in terms of its results?
1: I think you hit on them well. I think the most important point was that vast majority, 87%, as you mentioned, were recommended to get future repeat surveillance colonoscopy. And these percentages are similar regardless of what the patient's life expectancy was or whether they had a normal colonoscopy, and even if they had one to two small adenomas. I think it is important to point out that the study was limited to New Hampshire, and most of the patients were white, which may limit generalizability. There was also a substantial subgroup of patients that had a recommendation basically saying that the timing of surveillance colonoscopy would be determined after reviewing pathology results. The authors weren't able to identify what those recommendations were, so this could impact results as well.
0: Right. That was actually almost another 4,000 patients that could have been included in the study but were excluded because they didn't have any definitive follow-up recommendation. You and I have discussed this before. Our practices may tend to be a little bit different. I practice in a VA hospital where I take care of a lot of patients with a ton of comorbidities um, in terms of diabetes and cardiac disease and pulmonary disease. You're in Miami, and a big portion of your population down there are very healthy retirees who may have a good life expectancy, even though they're 75 or older. So how do you apply this data in your own practice when you think about whether or not to say somebody should stop surveillance colonoscopy versus making a recommendation of when to continue?
1: So my my practice tends to depend on the patient situation. And I think, as you pointed out, it's, it's setting dependent and it's patient dependent. Sometimes when I'm seeing a patient in clinic and as part of the visit, I'm discussing screening or surveillance, I really just try to have a discussion with them about the utility of surveillance colonoscopy, their prior colonoscopy results, evaluating their comorbidity and comorbidities and discussing their quality of life. And I, I really do try to come to a shared decision in those moments. Also, while this was not part of the author's study, I do utilize non-invasive testing for certain situations. And that can be helpful in terms of making a shared decision that everyone is comfortable with. Other times when I'm performing either a referred or an open access surveillance colonoscopy, in those cases, if I believe that further surveillance is not warranted, I try to have a telephone or in-person visit with the patient on a separate day. I do try not to reflexively or automatically always recommend repeat colonoscopy, but I always find that it's easier to have the discussion in a less pressured situation than a post-procedure area. I will note that something relevant to the study as well is that I have not incorporated any formal calculator of life expectancy into my discussions. I think this is something that was really interesting in the way they did this study, but without clear guidance on what calculator to use, how to implement it, I haven't actually incorporated that into my practice.
0: Well, that last point is particularly interesting. I'd note that in a prior summary written by one of our other associate editors, Jeff Lee, from all the way back in October of 2021, which looked at the efficacy of doing a initial screening colonoscopy in people over the age of 75. And essentially, it found that it was worthwhile to do in people between 75 and 80 if they had no history of cardiac disease and no history of diabetes or uh, COPD, and specifically that they use something called the e-prognosis tool. And for our listeners, again, that's e as in echo, prognosis.ucsf.edu. And that's a pretty simple tool that only takes a couple of minutes to calculate out somebody's life expectancy based on pretty basic demographic and and history and comorbidities. Having said that, gosh, when we're all scoping and moving from patient to patient, even a couple of minutes to calculate somebody's life expectancy can be tough to do. In my own practice, I know that it may be a little easier for me to communicate to patients that they may not need a, a repeat colonoscopy based on their comorbidities, and they're happy to just get that Definitive declaration for me. But again, you know, for you, Shreya, tell me a little bit more about how you have that conversation with your patients.
1: I generally just try to ask them what they know about colonoscopies. I try to get a better sense of what their prior polyp history has been, see what their family history has been, and understand exactly how much they understand about the efficacy of surveillance. It's a little bit easier sometimes when people have competing comorbidities, things like cardiopulmonary conditions that make anesthesia high risk, because these are people that really tend to understand the risk of anesthesia. Otherwise, I I really just try to discuss with them about what colonoscopy is for. I talk to them about the idea of polyps and how only a select few of those polyps can turn into cancer. And then if they turn into cancer, how long it would take. And I do use the idea of at least 10 to 15 years. And in general, I found that most patients are actually quite receptive to stopping surveillance. But I, I do feel that They appreciate having heard it from our side and not just having a declarative, you will stop surveillance colonoscopy, but explaining why you will stop surveillance colonoscopy. As I did mention, for those that really do want some sort of surveillance, I found that non-invasive strategies can be a good middle ground. So these are the tests that will detect advanced neoplasia, better than, more so than completely benign polyps, whereas colonoscopy certainly can detect both. And I found that for patients that want some sort of screening but agree that undergoing an invasive colonoscopy is not the right step, those can be a sort of stepping stone towards stopping surveillance. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense that
0: although I don't want our listeners to think that routinely it's okay to use non-invasive tests for colon polyp surveillance. Colonoscopy is certainly the preferred tool. In individualized situations with elderly patients that where the, the risk-benefit ratio is tougher to estimate, that might be a, a option. But I think the key point that you emphasized is shared decision-making with patients is something that we should do that we want to have that conversation with the patient. If we can't have it um, right after the colonoscopy, then hopefully that's something we can do in clinic. But we don't want to just reflexively recommend repeat surveillance colonoscopy in people that are over 65, certainly as they get up to age around 70 to 74, without taking into account what their life expectancy is and recognizing that if they have no polyps or only one to two small adenomas on their surveillance colonoscopy, they can go seven to 10 years before they need to come back.
1: Agreed. Thanks
0: again for joining me today, Shreya. For our listeners, this research was summarized in Dr. Kumar's article, which is in the August issue of Evidence-Based GI. That'll be sent out by the ACG on a blast email on August 16th. Please look at that to get more information about this topic. Also, please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform Follow us on Twitter at ACG underscore EBGI, where we host tutorials every Wednesday evening, and we look forward to you joining us for our next podcast.